Hello and welcome to Double Take, the Newton Investment Management podcast that tackles the meaty themes, mega forces, and current events shaping the markets. I'm Rafe Lewis, head of Newton's specialist investment research teams. And I'm Newton investigative research analyst Jack Encarnacio, the co-host here at Double Take. And on today's episode, we check in on the world of cryptocurrency and how the legacy financial system is managing this asset class. Recent volatility in that market has really challenged the view that many had of crypto as a kind of pseudonymous inflation hedge. There have been prosecutions of people using stolen or illicitly obtained crypto, and still many institutions and companies hold and custody crypto and are pushing forward with plans to build businesses around the many different brand name digital currencies and the blockchain ledger that records the transactions. We thought now would be a perfect time to level set around crypto. So we'll be joined this episode by Katie Neat, who's Chief Risk Officer for Security Services and Digital at our mothership, Bank of New York Mellon. We'll talk to Katie about the bank's rationale and efforts to develop crypto custody products amid the current tumultuous backdrop. And we're also joined by Allison Jimenez, President and Founder of Dynamic Securities Analytics. Allison specializes in securities litigation economic analysis and anti-money laundering consulting. And her practice is rapidly evolving to include cryptocurrency tracing and dissecting the inner workings of crypto. She's a former financial examiner at the Florida Department of Banking and Finance's Division of Securities, and also oversaw litigation economic analysis for Raymond James Financial. Should be an interesting discussion. First up, Allison Jimenez, welcome to Double Take. Thank you, Jack and Ray for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, we're, we're thrilled to have you. So, Allison, let's let's kind of refer back right off the bat to, to some things that Jack brought up there. So, you know, the marketing pitch, as it were, for crypto, it would be a great hedge on inflation. Stable coins were supposed to be stable. Crypto was supposed to be impervious to hacking due to the blockchain technology that undergirds it. And, you know, lay observer here feels like none of that's really playing out all of a sudden. So, uh you know, why is all this seem so clear now compared to a year ago, or am I misinterpreting something? No, all those are great points. So I think with the recent volatility, um, whether it's, uh, you know, stocks rising or, or crypto prices rising, sometimes that, that rising price can, can hide a lot of uh, things that you don't necessarily realize until, until the tide goes out. So um, some of the, the risks that perhaps were not as obvious when, uh, you know, the volatility was only going up endlessly that is now being uncovered as things come down are some of the, the risks that are more tied to um, things that were traditionally considered, you know, securities types violations of, of market manipulation or other type of financial product um, crimes of like having bad collateral for loans, which we, we've seen uh, recently some examples of that. So some of the risks that were you know, originally quickly identified with, in the crypto space about you know, being able to use it as a means of payment for illicit goods, whether you know, drugs on the dark net or you know, stolen credit cards, that was pretty quickly identified as this is a risk that um, you know, institutions who get involved need to be aware of and, and screen for. Um, and then the next risk that was pretty quickly identified was, well, now that that these prices are rising and it's becoming a, a you know some amount of store value that certainly fluctuates, but it became a, a target of attack for you know those those thefts and hacks that you mentioned. And, and now I think as the adoption has gotten broader and then a little more sophisticated, we're entering the realm of um, some of the 
financial product manipulation schemes that come, you know, in the securities market or you see in, you know, more traditional financial products like those bad loans, like the manipulation. Um, and I can just walk through one example that, I, that I've been seeing uh, recently. It's something I've been calling the, the pump and chump. Where in you know traditionally in securities you'll you'll hear about pump and dump where someone has a low price security and, and they you know inflate that price either through you know false marketing and message boards and maybe some manipulative trading to raise the price and once it hits uh, you know higher price and, and retail investors get involved they sell out and, and you know dump the stock on on retail investors. Now in the crypto world we're seeing something called you know that I'm referring to as a pump and chump where we still have that that uh, pumping phase of uh, you know, some coin or a token, NFT, what have you, where um, there's wash traded either between co-conspirators or even themselves where they're able to have multiple accounts at multiple firms or multiple accounts at the same firm, what have you. And there's an extensive amount of wash trading that perhaps um, in the crypto space was not I really identified as something that was risky to the entire crypto ecosphere, which I think is is now we're seeing the the damage that it can um, uh, produce across, you know, not not just limited to um, certain people, but it's causing widespread damage. So, quickly, you know, Allison, for our listeners, wash trading. Just could you quickly define that? Sure. So, if I um, have one coin and I uh, sell that coin, and I am also the purchaser of the coin on the other side, I can, you know, sell it for, you know, a thousand, and um, you know the then buy it on my other account um, and just trade back and forth between myself, just buying and selling, escalating that price um, each time I buy and sell it with myself. But, you know, the money's really going from my right pocket to my left pocket. Um, and I'm doing that. So then later, what I'll do is post that coin as collateral for a loan, whether it's at a um, exchange, maybe take a margin loan out against it or Recently, some of these um, contagious collapses we've seen have been posted as collateral in DeFi, where um, you post your 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 collateral, these coins, but you have manipulated the value to make it look like it's worth a lot more, <laughs> and then you take out a loan and you walk away, and you're, you really don't care about that that collateral because you knew that you had inflated it from trading with yourself to uh, increase the value up and up and up, and then you you know walk away with. Um, perhaps a stable coin instead and, and who's left holding the bag, who's the chump. In this case, you know, it might look like it's the the exchange in some cases it might, and it might look like it's the DeFi platform, but it's um, really the retail investors who uh, lent, they're trying to earn interest and there were some really high interest rates that were being offered um, for lending your stable coin to a platform. Um, and those retail investors who are trying to get that yield are the ones, their stable coins are gone because the bad actor who had been manipulating the price of some other coin um, walked away with the stable coins and now they're left holding this worthless or, or very little valued collateral. So if this is a more evolved um, risk that kind of starts involving things like counterparties that institutions really need to be aware of when you're, uh, say, a custodian who's collecting assets and you're letting um, people are in interest on those assets. Who's your counterparty? Who are you lending it to? Um, do they have uh, the security? Make sure there's not a hack. Do they have the um, right collateral? Do they know what they're doing? Some of these are, you know, kind of fly by night that, that pop up and disappear. Do they have folks that are behind it who have prior uh, fraud convictions? We've seen that also. Um, do you actually know who you're dealing with? So there's a lot 
a lot more institutional in, in market risk that I think is showing up now with through the volatility, through the, the price drops where it was a little bit masked when only prices were going up. So um, that's different from the original risk that everyone kind of identified of, well, criminals can use this for drugs, but now it's more of you have these market type risks of you know lending and manipulation that are, are a little bit different and, and ties in more of the institutional and, and um, financial institutions that really need to be aware of these more sophisticated risks that perhaps were overlooked, um, you know, in the earlier days of the crypto industry. Very, very interesting. You talk about that, that sort of KYC consideration, know your customer, and, and the position it puts institutions in to have to really bore down. I think just the fact that you're referring to that as, as a must and regulators expect, uh, you know, institutions to understand that about their crypto customers might be surprising to folks because like we mentioned, this idea that you can't really find out who's behind a coin, that it really is just like this random collection of numbers and a wallet address on the blockchain and you can't individualize it, yet we see warrants being served. We see people being arrested, indicted and charged with manipulating the crypto markets. How, how can you best explain to our listeners, Allison, how you can bridge that perception gap between this being anonymous and people being prosecuted for misusing crypto? Again, great points. So there, there's with with the advent of the, the blockchain ledgers, um, there's been this advent of uh, blockchain analytics, which is you know a, a very helpful tool that kind of bridges that gap between um, the pseudonymity of you know the random assortment of letters and numbers for a transaction, and uh, tries to tie that back to an entity. Um, and there's a lot of vendors out there right now who are competing for that market space because there's been a pretty clear recommendation, I'm not sure if they would agree with the word endorsement by the regulators that um, the crypto industry should be using these tools. Um, whether it's the you know, FinCEN or some of the state regulators, they put out pretty explicit statements that these tools exist and they can, they can help you comply with your AML obligations. Um, so there's a, definitely a space for these analytic companies. And it's, it's interesting the different methods they use are not all um, uniform in how they do this bridging the gap. Um, some use you know, large teams of investigators who are out there on the dark web you know, looking for addresses. Sometimes they're actually doing transactions and sending small you know, amounts of coin to different um, you know, wallets to see what happens. Uh, there's some other tactics that they use you know, serving as um, validators for transactions on different blockchains. And when you're a validator, you see a little bit more information than what's just on the blockchain. You have a little bit more insight. Um, so, so other things they're doing, they have websites where it looks like, you know, it is in fact a blockchain explorer, but they're also monitoring the traffic that comes uses that explorer to see, you know, what's the IP address of someone um, researching a specific transaction uh, that people might not realize they're actually using a tool uh, that's tied to a analytics company. And then there's some, some interesting ones where they're using AI trying to say, okay, well, we, we now know that this transaction pattern was a ransomware exploit. This is what the transactions look like. Let's go back through the blockchain because it's, it's always there and see if there's any other transactions that match that same pattern that might be a ransomware event we don't know about. So I think that's really uh, an interesting application. And those tools can also be used for things like uh, risk ranking. So um, if you're a crypto entity and you are thinking about onboarding a you know, customer, you can look at their wallet and see how much exposure they had to gambling sites or dark markets or interacting with a high-risk jurisdiction. And, and that provides um, 
you know, better onboarding decision making. But there's a lot of limitations to what blockchain analytics can do and can't do. There was an interesting um, uh, report by FATF, which is kind of the international governing body for uh, anti-money laundering, where they asked seven different blockchain analytics companies the same question, and they got seven different results. Um, so the results are, you know, contingent upon their methodology and which one's right, which one's wrong. I think um, I was a little bit surprised by that. I thought the results would be similar. The question was something like how, you know, what percentage of illicit activity is gone as done through peer-to-peer -peer exchanges? And the answers were widely different. Um, so even amongst analytics companies, they, they come up with different results. Uh, a couple other things to you know, note with these, and you know, they are helpful, but they have very good insight on a small portion of um, crypto transactions. As the name implies, blockchain analytics only looks at the transactions on the blockchain. Um, and most transactions occur within exchanges. Um, and we have, you know, some huge exchanges that account for, you know, huge percentages of uh, transactions. So if I have one coin and I want to, you know, sell it and someone else in that exchange wants to buy it, that transaction's matched within the exchange and it's never posted onto the blockchain. And that is, counts for the vast majority um, of uh, transactions in certain coins. Again, it varies depending on what coin or token you're looking at, but um, and the significance there, quickly, uh, Allison, is that if it's not posted on the blockchain, it's not a public-facing ledger that an AI company can scrape to detect mm -hmm. the patterns you're talking about and say, wow, this, this transaction pattern really matches a transaction pattern that we were able to prove sometime in the past or authorities were able to prove through an arrest or something sometime in the past indicated uh, bad activity. So if it stays in the exchange, uh, there's no sort of public data to scrape. Exactly, exactly. So th there are very helpful in the, the public transactions, but once it hits an exchange, you know, they're, they're very limited. Um, you know, they can only see what goes in and out of the exchange, but most of these transactions are occurring within the exchange. So uh, it, it's not a cure-all, it's, it's helpful, it's um, very interesting, but there's a lot of things that aren't um, covered. Another thing that is generally not being able to be detected currently through the analytics is, um, you know, crimes that are not crypto native. And let me give you an example of a crypto native crime and then contrast it with another uh, non-crypto native crime so you kind of understand where I'm going. So if I am um, selling drugs on the dark net and uh, you know, I receive my uh, payment in coin and then I send that coin from the dark net market to an exchange, that's pretty clear. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. You can see the, the, the uh, transfer of value from um, you know, the dark net market to an exchange. And it's Pretty well understood that the dark net markets are risky and maybe that's not a customer you want or maybe it's a customer you examine much more closely but on the other hand if i am a drug cartel and i had some uh you know sales of drugs in europe and i were going to return those funds uh remit those funds back to latin america and i um, just send it from a wallet to a wallet and it doesn't go through a, a dark net market there's no way for the exchanges to or, sorry the analytics companies to identify those wallets as, um, you know, being drug related. It just, it just, it looks like a transaction. There's, there's nothing uh, right now that would indicate to them that those um, uh, off chain, those non crypto native crimes are suspicious. It just, it just is not counted. So it, it, they're really focused right now at 
identifying crimes that are crypto native, ransomware, the dark net, um, hacks, they're good at that, but they're not yet tailored to identifying um, non-crypto native that's layered eventually through uh, you know, the crypto sphere. So that's something that you know, banks, uh, other financial institutions are required to do. Um, you know, for example, uh, again, if there was a bank that had a customer who sold drugs for cash and deposited that cash into a checking account, um, it was not a uh, checking account native crime, it was a cash native crime. But once that money hit the regulated uh, bank, they are uh, required to have all that KYC in place and customer due diligence and monitor transactions to hopefully identify, well, this is unusual. Where is this customer you know, getting all this cash from? Why is it a checking account for a florist, but they you know, never pay uh, for you know, gas for delivery for the delivery truck? So those, those type of things are, you know, pretty well established, you know, there's still plenty of times that banks and other financial institutions get it wrong, but that expectation is there. And I don't know that that expectation is quite there yet in the crypto sphere. And I do know from having looked at um, the suspicious activity reports, that these are filings that um, all financial institutions uh, are required to file when they um, notice something unusual that's indicative of uh, perhaps a financial crime or money laundering that the ones that are being filed by crypto, um, they're, they're kind of focused in certain areas and, and not um, really specific uh, identifying things like elder abuse or wash trading or corruption, which are um, all things that they should be looking for, but they are really good at noticing things that are kind of crypto native, such as a unregistered crypto exchange. They are really filing a lot of um, SARS on that area. So I think there's, certainly areas where they could um, improve, uh, but their focus and attention seems to be still on crypto native crimes, which, you know, that's important, but in order to achieve better compliance, they need to start looking a little bit more broadly. Um, and especially with the evolving market manipulation type activities, that's something that is, you know, causing huge damage to investors and, and custodians and platforms and, um, you know, huge losses that have really kind of not gotten enough attention to this point. But I think given this volatility and the damage that's, that's you know, um, in its wake, that's certainly going to um, get more attention and they're going to have to level up their, their monitoring for, for those manipulative type activities. So Allison, uh, that is a great segue to what my question would be. I'd like to use you as a bit of a, a barometer of sorts on the crypto market uh, largely, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of business models, a lot of businesses, you know, grow up in the last several years around this form of currency. And I'm assuming your phone rings, uh, you know, when a financial institution or a related institution wants to dip its toe in to get in here and to understand the risk and the compliance aspects. My question to you is this, are you seeing a fall off in inbound interest uh, among businesses to get into this market given you know, the, the bad actors, the hacking, the, the, the numerous things that you just went through? Not yet. Um, however, you know, with the recent volatility, um, I do, am seeing things like, uh, you know, there's been layoffs within some of these large organizations. Um, and uh, yeah, I think some sometimes the ball's already started rolling on, on rolling out these new products or the excitement's still there, but I, I think that will uh, be dampered, <laughs> um, but I haven't seen it yet. 
That's great. So can you take us through what is a reasonable expectation of a regulator? Like, you know, it's assumed that a that a licensed and regulated bank would not be opening accounts for customers who are laundering money, who are getting money from sources they, they shouldn't be getting it from or masking the true nature of of where the money comes from. But you pointed out the exchange piece and other blind spots that, you know, it wouldn't be reasonable for a regulator to go to a financial institution and say, hey, you failed to detect this on a private exchange that never hit the public ledger. So what's a reasonable expectation? What's the state of that as it regards what regulators expect people involved in crypto, institutions, I should say, involved in crypto to be able to prove and demonstrate? You know, the FinCEN has recently come out with a few statements and, and made a few speeches, and, and they boiled it down uh, succinctly, and I think that's helpful. So uh, the way FinCEN approached it, they came up with three main things they expect, um, that you understand the risk you face, and you, the institution, uh, the customers you serve, and the parties you transact with. I, I think so far, the, for within the crypto sphere, there's been a lot of focus on understanding the customers you serve, like you talked about not serving money launders, not serving, you know, oligarchs that are on the banned sanction list. There's been a lot of attention to that part, and that's great, and it's probably a good place to start. But I think we're seeing with the volatility, institutions and organizations do not understand the risk they face, uh, you know, with some of the contagions and the um, quick meltdowns we've seen, that that was not thought through um, you know, thoroughly or, or correctly. And then also, again, with the contagion issue, uh, understanding the parties you transact with. So maybe you have good onboarding, you know who your customers are, maybe you're this custodian model I, I mentioned where you're letting retail investors, you know, store their uh, coins with you securely and maybe earn some interest. But where are you, where are you lending out those, those coins to? Who's that counterparty? You know, are they letting bad actors take out uh, loans that they never intended to repay? So I think, uh, you know, two of those three risks we're seeing now with the volatility that perhaps the crypto space was not as advanced as uh, it could have been, or, um, you know, there's there's certainly room for improvement. Um, there was a, another report that came out from the New York Department of Financial Services, and they, they had some more specific, you know, those FinCEN were pretty broad, but they had some specific things that you should be uh, looking for and things you should know, and, you know, you should be able to respond to your regulators. Uh, you know, are you monitoring for high-risk uh, jurisdictions and, and sanctions that, you know, especially um, highlighted after the, the invasion of Ukraine? Are you identifying um, uh, coins that are coming through mixers or tumblers? Um, you know, funds that are coming from dark markets or associated with ransomware scams. And those M- are mixers and tumblers, Allison. I- I'm obliged yes. to have you pause on that just quickly. Uh, it-, it sounds like a way to mask like a transaction and-, and make it look like a whole lot of little microtransactions or a bar. Yeah. <laughs> sounds like fun. Um, yeah. So, Jack, like you had said, it's, uh, you know, since you are able to. On, on the blockchain, if this is a one of those blockchain transactions, follow the um, you know transaction as it moves from wallet to wallet. If you send it to a, a mixer, it takes your coins and coins from many other people, and um, you know sp- spins them around and, and breaks up. Say you had a hundred coins you deposited, and then at some later date, it will give you you know chunks of ten coins and two coins and seven coins. So you eventually get out. Um, what you put in, but broken up into smaller pieces. So it's harder to identify which were yours that came from a hack versus, you know, someone else who put in their coins. 
Um, but it's become you know, pretty clear from regulators that they just assume the mixer's involved, that there's money laundering or a nefarious reason. I think you know, a couple of years ago that um, the industry uh, didn't see that was quite so bright a line from a regulatory viewpoint, but I, I think the regulators are really hammering. So we've not come up with a legitimate reason yet to use this. Um, so they, they really wanna make sure that that is something that um, the crypto entities are identifying. But again, just, it's just another way to try and obfuscate ownership and, and, and separate the bad acts from the coins. Um, but again, all those that New York's asking uh, the crypto companies to look at are really, maybe aside from sanctions jurisdictions, is crypto native crimes. And it still doesn't capture that part of um, market manipulation we talked about. And it still doesn't capture that part of, you know, if you're layering, if your crime happened out in the fiat world, and then you want to, uh, you know, launder it through crypto, it, that's not on that list. And I feel that's, you know, what going forward is going to have to be, but regulators and the industry aren't quite there yet. Well, Allison, you're, you're highlighting some, what are probably some kind of key uh, regulatory loopholes that are yet to evolve. So, you know, if you could pull out your, your crystal ball here for a second, I wonder, as you look out over the next three to five years, in uh, you know important jurisdictions, you know North America, you know Europe, where a lot of the transacting happens in terms of global wealth generally, what you know kind of very impactful regulations would you expect to see in the crypto world that would affect your client base? You know the large financial institutions and the platforms, etc. I think um, the perhaps more clear statement that manipulating. Uh, markets within crypto markets is a crime, whether you want to classify it as a securities crime or false statements, that is not something that um, is okay within the sphere. And I think it's just been, you know, um, I'm going to do it until someone tells me I can't. That's how the, you know, the modus operandi has been uh, so far. So I think it's a more clear statement on that. And again, there's the whole argument of who's going to regulate or oversee it. But if it's a, you know, a we looked at a scheme to induce someone else to buy something. It really doesn't make a difference, you know, from that standpoint, whether it's a security or commodity or, or what have you. So I think a little stronger stance on um, that would be helpful and um, give some guidance of where the transaction monitoring needs to focus. And, you know, not just focusing on detecting, you know, drug dealers on the dock market or, or ransomware that these other traditional uh, financial crimes that happen in sophisticated asset classes can also happen and are happening in crypto. So that's uh, one of them. And then focusing on um, having better tools to monitor on um, off-chain transactions. We talked about the analytics companies that are really focused for the on-chain transactions, making sure the the internal transactions um, at exchanges or, you know, other types of platforms are also being monitored closely and they're, and they're providing useful information to law enforcement. Um, as I, some of my research I've done, I do see that exchanges are filing a lot of suspicious, suspicious activity reports, but they might not be very specific. They're kind of broadly, you know, transactions without a business purpose, which I guess is better than not filing, but how useful is that to law enforcement to track, to realize, oh gosh, this is a you know, North Korea, or this is an oligarch, or this is a, you know, major drug cartel, if it's something that generic, it might not be um, as helpful. So 
you know, having better applications for um, internal uh, transactions where the bulk of, you know, crypto transactions take place. They're not on the exchange. So we can't rely on blockchain analytics companies um, if that's, you know, transactions that are not on the chain. Um, and then as I've hammered on a couple of times, being able to identify uh, criminal proceeds that enter the crypto sphere that might not have originally generated, been generated and earned in cryptocurrency, but then are layered through it. And again, that's something that's just not from, from my research has been picked up on as much. And, and again, the emphasis uh, from regulators that yes, this is your responsibility. You need to monitor for it. And, and here's how you should monitor for it. Um, you know, they've done a pretty good job uh, you know, giving details about how to monitor for ransomware, for instance, but um, I think some more guidance would be helpful, but they can also apply guidance from other industries of, you know, banking and securities that there's existing guidance that can be applicable in the crypto space. Final question for you, Allison, as we talk so much about the role these exchanges play and the role that, you know, they sort of have in terms of unwittingly, in a lot of cases, I'm sure, although not in all, facilitating uh, suspicious transactions. I'd imagine that puts the exchanges in a very difficult position. Uh, on the one hand, you want crypto enthusiasts to use your exchange and see it as a place where their privacy is protected and where they can transact in crypto in a way that, you know, isn't sort of surveilled. But at the same time, you don't want to be known as an exchange that's this sort of beehive for people that are using crypto uh, for things they really shouldn't be doing. Uh, how do you think exchanges are likely to strike that balance between being you know, open and transparent with regulators, but at the same time, uh, not being perceived as, as a place where you're going to get found out if you're trying to you know, straddle that line of what's appropriate with crypto? I think for the, the exchanges who want to be U.S. compliant, they're just going to have to go all in and, and no longer you know, say they're somehow different than any other financial institution. Um, they're they're not any different. They have the same obligations and responsibilities. I, I understand the you know founding ethos of, of crypto back in the day was um, you know existing outside of the system. But if you want to be part of the system, you have to abide by the system's rules. On the other hand, there are uh, you know hundreds, thousands of unregistered exchanges for those folks who want to stay outside of um, the oversight and. Uh, as I mentioned, the one thing the registered exchanges are doing very well is identifying these unregistered exchanges. And, you know, it might be uh, self-interest for them, which is uh, fine by me, um, you know, trying to identify the the companies that are, you know, taking the funds from bad actors or, um, you know, saving themselves some, some money by not going, you know, having their customers go through the KYC process and, and saving themselves some money in time by not having, you know, compliance and onboard. And that's a, um, you know, if you're trying to be compliant, you're doing those things, which is, you know, uh, an expense. Um, so I applaud them for identifying the unregistered exchanges. But at this point, it's, uh, you know, they're a financial institution like any other. And if they want to, you know, um, make it a more widespread accepted industry, then I don't see that there would be special rules for those who, who want to be part of the widespread you know, financial industry in the United States, they're this industry like no other. I mean, they don't have any differences from others. And, uh, you know, you can't have it both ways. Well, as usual, a crypto conversation that raises at least as many questions as it answers. Uh, this is the deepest well 
in finance, from what I can tell. Allison Jimenez, president and founder of Dynamic Securities Analytics. Thanks for taking us on a walk down crypto lane. And uh, folks, watch this space because something tells me this, our second episode on crypto is not likely our last. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's welcome to Double Take Katie Neat. She's the Chief Risk Officer for Security Services and Digital at BNY Mellon, which is a global custody bank and asset manager that also happens to be the parent company to my and Jack's employer, Newton Investment Management. So BNY really made waves last year when it unveiled a new crypto custody business that to many signified a real coming of age for cryptocurrencies as an asset class. The stated aim was for BNY Mellon to become the industry's first multi-asset digital custody and administration platform for traditional and digital assets. And, you know, we brought Katie on here mainly to get an uptake, uh, an update on that and kind of see what the new thinking is on crypto. Katie, welcome to Double Take. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And a lot has changed uh, since the announcements that Rafe was referring to last year. Since then, of course, the crypto market has been extremely volatile. We've had a bevy of negative headlines. Uh, I wonder uh, how much you have to invest, you know, in your mind to start up a custody business like this now, if the risk reward equation has changed, given what's happened, are there more hurdles to jump now in your view? Yeah, I mean, the headlines have been a roller coaster ride in crypto for a while now. And of course, the reputational risk is something we pay close attention to when we're considering any new product. Um, but we're not in the business here of taking a position on the price of crypto. Uh, what we're looking to provide is access to these markets for our clients who want to see the interoperability across the traditional space and their digital assets. And of course, in the traditional space, we see those highs and lows, but, but we don't step back from our traditional custody product when equity prices drop. We also find that increasingly our clients are looking for a trusted partner, that safe port in the storm that they can rely on to be there and provide a resilient service, whatever the weather in the market. Uh, but of course, we've invested to build this out, and that's included investing in our risk framework, uh, building out particularly on the cyber and technology front and on tools to support in the fight against financial crime. The starting point for us, though, fortunately, was an existing institutional grade risk management framework, which we've really had to adapt to support the unique needs of digital assets. I think the bar is always going to be high for an organization like BMY Mellon when it comes to considering reputational risk. Um, and, and we've really done a lot to consider how that might shape up in this space as we've gone through the, the assessment process. Katie, I'd like to home in a little bit more on the commentary you made about the volatility. Um, so, you know, when when you look at what's gone on with crypto prices, from an, a strictly investment point of view, I think a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the crypto investors are obviously stinging as of when we're recording this right now in early July 2022. But there are plenty of business models out there that can actually benefit from volatility in the markets. And I wonder, you know, as a custody bank that's getting into this new asset class, how do you guys view volatility uh, from the business perspective? Um, as I said earlier, we, we don't make a value judgment on the asset class itself. Um, we're focused on supporting our clients' needs in, in whichever market they seek to operate and building a robust risk framework around that, taking a critical look at every aspect of risk management across the product lifecycle, whether that's operational risk, technology risk, reputational risk, allows our clients to focus on that volatility and, and making making the most of it if that's what they're choosing to do. Um, 
really what we need to do is, is help surface the risks that that volatility poses. So risk management was paramount to the formation of our integrated digital assets offering. These The recent events have only really validated that defining principle for us. And as a core part of the infrastructure for the financial services market, we're really committed to working with regulators, industry participants, investors to shape the future of the industry. So to do that sustainably, we really focus on how we manage risk from a traditional perspective, as well as managing the novel risk, including the, the volatility posed by digital assets for the firm and for our clients. Can we take a step back, Katie, in terms of, you know, I think BNY Mellon's view here is that in the long run, financial institutions that have a history of trust and, and having resilient trust through difficult market conditions that those will become the preferred custodians of digital assets, just as they've been for traditional assets. But banks, of course, as we know globally in, in the United States, are subject to a range of compliance and legal requirements that really crypto exchanges, at least not yet, don't seem to be in the same way. Does this, in your view, complicate or enhance maybe the value here for banks in participating in this in this world? Yeah, it's an interesting environment. and and quite different in that we're competing not just against our traditional competitors, but alongside startups and fintechs and digital natives. Um, but I actually think it enhances the value for banks like BNY Mellon. We already operate in a highly regulated environment and we take our responsibility as a systemically important financial institution very seriously. Um, as I said, we actively engage with the regulators to ensure that any product or solution we offer clients is, in, is conducted in a well-controlled, a safe, a sound manner and it's compliant with all the applicable laws and regulatory expectations. Integrating and enabling that interoperability between the traditional assets and the digital assets, as I mentioned earlier, allows for other businesses to leverage our capabilities. So from our unique position in the industry, we're seeing that confluence of traditional financial institutions and digitally native firms. And, and we believe that the traditional financial versus crypto native distinction is, is fabricated really. To reach that next stage of maturity, those industry participants will need to work together and learn from each other and bring all their skills to the table. And it's only really in that way that we can advance as an industry. Uh, we're increasingly seeing the role of fintechs critical to our strategy and those of many of our peers. Um, we're leveraging our digital expertise and we've invested in strategically integrating the, the capabilities of leading fintechs to accelerate the development of our solutions that integrate digital asset custody, execution, administration services, seamlessly with traditional assets. Uh, just by way of example, we're working with Fireblocks, who are a digital asset custody transfer and settlement platform provider on our custody solution, both as a vendor, but also as a strategic investment. We've also integrated um, Chainalysis, who are a leading compliance software firm, into our digital assets ecosystem. I mean, looking at this from a risk management lens, these strategic investments help to mitigate some of our third party risk, but they also help to give us access to some of the best minds in the industry who are really innovating in this space to actively manage risk. Katie, um, from the client perspective, is there any benefit to uh, you know, using a custodian who can handle traditional currency as well as cryptocurrencies? And, and is there any synergy on the bank level as well for BNY Mellon? I'll take the, the second part of that first. Uh, definitely synergy. You know, we, we um, like many of our peers, operate a huge technology infrastructure um, that can benefit from the use of some of the distributed ledger technology that you need to be able to support digital assets. So it can really help advance us in terms of our, our technology that we use across multiple asset classes. 
Um, certainly the the integration with fintechs and, and other innovative technologies allows us again to advance our existing solutions. But I, I've used this word a few times now, it's the interoperability our clients are looking for, not having to go to two or three different places for different asset classes, being able to, that kind of one-stop shop idea of being able to come to one place and see the same reporting, use the same instruction engine, have that true interoperability between all the assets that, that you expect to be able to custody. And then it's the trust, you know, coming to BMY Mellon as the, as the trusted partner for, for anything that you're looking to, to dip your toe in the water for. Um, and that's what we're looking to provide with that digital assets unit. Katie, is it any more challenging to screen for, let's call it suspect gains in crypto than it is in regular cash in the kinds of assets that, that banks like BNY are accustomed to dealing in for generations? Yeah, this is one of the first things I started looking at as a risk manager in this space. And the key aspect here is the willingness to be transparent. I think the benefit of working in the traditional finance space is that we hold ourselves to different standards than other companies in, in the digital assets industry. And addressing um, AML and, and KYC, know your client requirement, is what we already do at scale for traditional assets. And we're working to ensure those protections are in place and accountability is distributed across the organization. Um, incorporating our, our really strict compliance principles for digital assets. But there's an argument here that the use of distributed ledger technology actually makes it more transparent than fiat cash transactions. Um, certainly using the distributed ledger, you can find out more about more issues in real time. You can do really detailed investigations using the blockchain and trace the bad actors in a heartbeat, as opposed to the years sometimes it can take in the traditional space. I think to address the complexities, though, of providing digital custody services, what we've had to do is really enhance our due diligence framework. Good example there is our client onboarding, which begins with putting in place enhanced due diligence processes around knowing our customer, knowing the transaction in this space. So where has that cryptocurrency been throughout its life, which we do in connection with Chainalysis, I mentioned earlier. And then another new acronym for you, a KYV or Know Your Virtual Asset Service Provider, to ensure that our product and the institutional client base continues to adhere to those standards that we, we set forth and we expect our regulators to set forth as well. Very interesting. So, you know, Katie, last question. Um, you know, if we have you on the podcast in five years, how do you think this custody business will have evolved as it relates to crypto, you know, what, what kind of offerings, what kind of technology, you name it. I, I you know, I don't want to fill in the white space here, but <laughs> well, how do you think this will be different then than it is today? I, I really think digital assets are a huge opportunity to reshape the capital markets, um, both in terms of operational efficiencies and shifting liquidity models. And that's all because of the instant delivery versus payment and lifecycle automation that smart contracts offer on that distributed ledger technology. Having those digital asset capabilities really fully integrated with traditional assets enables our clients to have greater operational efficiency, ability to manage their exposures and be more agile. Really integrating and enabling that interoperability between the traditional and the digital assets allows for other businesses to leverage our capabilities. That gives us an opportunity to look at our business models and assess where there's future opportunity engaging with new, this new segment of clients such as fintechs and digitally native banks or exchanges and, and investors in that space. I think what I've learned over the past few years as we've developed this offering, as well as other products and services in the digital asset space, is that the digital asset space moves exceptionally fast. In traditional financial services, we've generally got more time to adapt and more flexibility in terms of timelines. 
we view the speed at which the digital asset market moves as an opportunity for us to continue to learn and evolve our thinking. And really, we see the events of the past few weeks as another opportunity for us to continue the developments of our products and services. But considering all those categories of risk, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to quote Winston Churchill now, a guy who really needed to manage risk from, from the mid 1940s. <laughs> um, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think, you know, as we see the headlines and and, and keep an eye on our Twitter feeds, um, taking a crisis and learning from it, adapting, ensuring we stay ahead and continue to meet our clients' needs is really an edge for us. So a lot of work to be done. Katie Neat, Chief Risk Officer for Security Services and Digital at Bank of New York Mellon. Very grateful that you could join us on Double Take. Thank you very much. Investment Management North America LLC, NIMNA, or the firm, is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, BNY Mellon. The firm was established in 2021, comprised of equity and multi-asset teams from an affiliate, Mellon Investments Corporation. The firm is part of a group of affiliate companies that individually or collectively provide investment advisory services under the brand Newton, or Newton Investment Management, Newton. Newton currently includes NIMNA and Newton Investment Management Limited, Newton Limited. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of NIMNA, which are subject to change and which NIMNA does not undertake to update. This publication or any portion thereof may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This document may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstance in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this publication is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by NIMNA. NIMNA makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment, or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with NIMNA, do not endorse, sponsor, sell, or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Any forward-looking statements speak only as of the date they are made and are subject to numerous assumptions, risks, and uncertainties, which change over time. Actual results could differ materially from those anticipated in forward-looking statements. If distributed in the UK, EMEA, Australia, New Zealand, this podcast is issued by Newton Limited and may be deemed a financial promotion. Newton Limited is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E20, 1JN, in the conduct of investment business. Register in England, number 01371973. NIM is also registered as investment advisors with the Securities and Exchange Commissions, SEC, to offer investment advisory services in the United States. 
If distributed in Canada, this podcast is issued by either Newton Limited, which is availing itself of the International Advisors Exemption, IAE, in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. The IAE is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirement, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations, or NIMNA, which is availing itself of the IAE in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Manitoba. The IAE is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirements, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations.